Not sure how many of you saw this, but the other day, Jason Wright, president of the Washington Commanders, took to Twitter to attack Scott Abraham of the local ABC affiliate because he had the nerve to sit down with Carson Wentz, the team's new quarterback, and ask this. Real talk here, Carson. It's been well documented. Philly didn't want you. Indy didn't want you. Do you think this is your last chance to prove that you can be a starting quarterback in the NFL? Wright tweeted, Thankfully, Carson demonstrated grace and class in response to this pompous, unprofessional mess. I recognize you have made a living on childlike provocation, but it needs to be called out. Don't expect special access and good luck building rapport with the guys. And my response is, what the fuck? Why do professional athletes, our supposed heroes, our supposed tough guys, need so many babysitters? Scott Abraham said nothing untrue. Wentz was unwanted by the Eagles, and he was unwanted by the Colts. So instead of dogging a reporter, then threatening his access, maybe Wright could have just complimented his quarterback for handling tough questions well. Alas, these are the Washington commanders. They just can't help themselves. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Ben Arthur, Tennessee Titans beat writer for the Nashville Tennessean and the former beat writer of the Laredo Fantasy of the Icon Women's Football Association for the Laredo Morning Times. This is episode number 273. Let's sling some Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, Ben, you're a young writer at the Nashville Tennessean, and I can tell you as a former young writer at the Nashville Tennessean that if you work hard and bust your butt and do your best, one day you could be sitting in a closet hosting a podcast. Dreams can come true if you just work hard. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You're the Titans beat writer for the for the Nashville, Tennessee. And again, the newspaper I actually started my career at way back in 1994. But I'm looking through the uh, through the depths of your your career and your coverage. And you started your career professionally at the Laredo Morning Times in Texas, Laredo, Texas. Mm -hmm. And you covered a team in a league that I did not know ever existed. You covered the Laredo fantasy of the Icon Women's Football Association. Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was quite the experience. Um, well, when, when I came to Laredo, I mean, I, I knew what my mission was. I mean, I, I knew I, I kind of maybe had a little bit of an ego coming out of college. I, I thought I was going to be at this big, you know, in, in a big market working for a big paper just because of the internship experience and whatnot I had, but I, I got humbled very quickly just in the job application process, I couldn't find a job. And, and Laredo, the Laredo Morning Times was the, the place, the only place actually that gave me a, a, an offer. And, and so that was my first full-time job. And, and so everything I did was kind of with the, the bigger goal in mind, right? To kind of, um, I don't want to say to just get out of Laredo, but like that's, I mean, my goals were obviously bigger than Laredo, but, but I've always prided myself in really diving into the stories and the people and, and, and the teams I'm covering, regardless of how small or how big or how much recognition I'd get. I knew that all those opportunities were reps for me. And, and so I really tried to, to embrace that. And so uh, Laredo Fantasy um, were that was one of the teams I, I cover. I cover multiple teams in that league. I, um, it, it was yeah, <laughs> I'd even forgotten about that until you, you sprung it on me. I mean, because that was so long ago. But um, but yeah, that, that was a lot of fun. And I think we're covering teams like that in leagues like that, that maybe even in markets like that, don't always get a, a ton of coverage. They're always so grateful for your coverage, and that makes you feel really good about your work and and. I was covering high school sports down there as well, like golf, semi-pro soccer, just a lot of the types of things that maybe don't get as much coverage, but people are really grateful um, for the stories um, uh, and the interview requests. And, and you know, I've, I've always felt like those were some of the best interviews I had because it wasn't well, when, when you when you deal with kind of professional athletes, sometimes it's just you know, another interview from, from their perspective, but a lot of people in, in those kinds of leagues 
um, are, are just so grateful for, for your coverage. And so I really, honestly, I, I loved every moment of telling those kinds of stories. All right. So first of all, I just want to say the, the, the game story I'm reading here, it was the fantasy playing the Rockport Hurricanes, H-E-R dash R-I-C-A-N-E-S, which is really not that clever, but kind of funny. When you're covering these games, I'm actually fascinated by yeah. this, the, the fantasy where people are at these games, number one. Number two, were you, was there a press box? Were you covering it from the sideline? Oh, no, no. It was not. It was like going to um, like your, your daughter or son's like little league baseball game or, or, or soccer game. It was like at just random parks. You know, people had like uh, those foldable chairs set up. Um and yeah, there's there no press box. The press box was the bleachers. That's where I was set up. And and you, you couldn't in those kinds of environments, there was no like official like you kind of had to estimate like with the yards, like there were no yard markers. And so all those yard details and stuff I was putting in those stories, they were estimates like the, the refs weren't. I mean, it, it was very informal but you just kind of worked with what you had. And yeah, that, that was, that was quite the experience. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was, that was, that was fun. Those were good times. Good times. <laughs> Don't you miss at all? Or you go to, a, you cover a Laredo fantasy game and like, there's not a woman on that field who won't talk to you after the game. And they're thrilled you're there. And they think it's yeah. so awesome that they're going to be in the small paper in Laredo. They're thrilled. And they're going to save that article. Some of them are going to cut it out. Others are going to print it out, whatever. They're going to save it. There are people I guarantee one million percent guarantee you members of the Laredo fantasy who somewhere have a scrapbook or something with your articles in it. Right. You cover the Tennessee Titans now. These players, maybe some of them give a crap a little bit. Maybe some of them know your name. Maybe, you know, blah, blah. Do you miss in a way the the people you cover caring about who you are and what you write? I, I do. And yeah, that was kind of one of the things I thought about the most when I, I left Laredo because I was I left Laredo to go to Seattle, which is actually where I'm from. But um, I was going to cover the Seahawks, and um, that that was kind of my main beat. I covered some of the other teams out there, but I knew I, I wasn't gonna have people who were as excited to to talk with me and and just really cherish the opportunity to to kind of have stories written about them and. And all the messages I got when I kind of did the typical announcement on Twitter that I was leaving and some of the messages I got from parents, athletic directors, just Laredo community sports fans, um, the, the gratitude um, I, I got in those messages were kind of a level of gratitude I'd never gotten in and probably will never get again. Um, and, and that just kind of takes me to how you know, how, how much of what you do is, is such a tremendous privilege, even at a point where I'm at now where I'm covering NFL players and you may not kind of get that kind of response from people when, when you write stories about them, but um, it, it is a tremendous privilege and, and an honor to be able to tell stories of, of games and, and of people within those games. And um, that's, I think that's kind of the biggest thing I learned there. It's funny. There's a movie, Doc Hollywood, an old movie where a guy wants to be a, uh, he wants to be an L.A. plastic surgeon and he gets stuck in this small town. And he lives in this small town and he's there for a long time and he's operating on kids and taking out their tonsils and measles and blah, blah, blah. And he winds up. Uh, he winds up getting the plastic surgery job and then he realizes how much he misses the small town and operating on. And I do feel like for most people in this business, at some point you realize not that you'd want to go back to Laredo, but that there's there is something special about being able to call a high school coach and the guy being happy to talk to you, you know, like there is something about that, that we overlook in this profession. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right, Jeff. I mean, there is a, definitely a, a level of personal connection that you don't get in the highest levels of, of college athletics or, you know, pro athletics. I mean, it's a very unique and, and special bond that you really develop with, with some of these, these kids and these parents and these, coaches and and as you said the excitement wanting to talk to you i think the level of stories you get in many ways are could trump anything you get at the level i'm at now just because people want to talk to you they're so willing to share and let you inside their homes and really 
reveal themselves at a depth that maybe you don't get that much um, at this level. So um, it's always going to hold a special place in my heart, the opportunity I had there, the stories I told there. Um, I wouldn't want to live in Laredo again, uh, just to be honest, like just from a, a lifestyle standpoint. Honestly, I felt very kind of lonely out there, but just in terms of the pure, just the quality of stories and just from being a, a, a reporter and, and knowing what you could, the kinds of pieces you could tell out there, it was second to none, honestly. I would say my two years at the Tennessee and two and a half years were the two and a half loneliest years of my life. It was my first job out of college. I didn't know many people. I was a guy out of New York moving to Tennessee. I was lonely as a, per- a person could be. You're a kid out of Seattle. You graduate from the University of Portland. You moved to Laredo, Texas. What was that like living there? It was it was really tough. Uh, well, first of all, no one no one in my family, people I knew, wanted me to go there because I mean, just perception outside perceptions of border towns. I mean, Texas is like literally where I lived. I lived ten minutes from the international border, like with Mexico. That's how close to the border I lived. And, and there are a lot of perceptions. I mean, I didn't really know what I was getting into, but I knew it was a job opportunity. I knew it was my foot in the door, but uh, a lot of people didn't want me to go, but, but I I said, I was going to do it. It's not going to be for very long. You know, if I do what I'm supposed to do and just try to embrace it from a career, from a work standpoint, but, but from the day to day, yeah, it was, it was tough. I, I didn't, I didn't go out one time I lived there, like, and when I say go out, I didn't go to like a bar or a club or anything like that. The entire time I lived there, which was actually only six months, I, I was in and out relatively quickly. But um, in six months, I, I really didn't do anything. I mean, I went out to eat a couple times. I became friends with this one family. Uh, they became like my, really the only people I was close to down there. They're from um, Tonga, I want to say if I remember correctly, just a really nice family, you know, bonded with, you know, the, the dad who actually had like a rugby team in, in Laredo actually wrote a story on his, on his rugby program. And then we just kind of developed a relationship. I became close with his family. I actually would like work out his son who was like in middle school at the time playing basketball because I was a, you know, big basketball player growing up in, in Seattle. So just became close to that family. But apart from that, it was, it was honestly just work. And, and when I wasn't working, uh, it was FaceTiming my, my family and, and my friends. And, uh, I actually lived in an Airbnb the entire time I was there. I didn't even have like a, like, I didn't even like formally rent a place. It was like an Airbnb that I just stayed at on a month to month basis. And, the landlord was like this kind, like Indian, Indian lady who lived in the home with me. And, and she kind of, I guess, became a friend because I just saw her so much. But yeah, it, I lived a very boring life. I, it, I I couldn't even tell you like one like really exciting thing I did. I mean, San Antonio was kind of I guess San Antonio was the fun place people would go to. Um, like on weekends, it was like two hours away, but for people wanting to go out or have fun, that was the thing people did. And I went to San Antonio a couple of times, but it was for work purposes, like to cover, they had like the state basketball tournaments and stuff there. So the teams, um, I, I'd travel with, with the team and cover them there. But, um, but yeah, for, for the most part, it, it wasn't, it wasn't a whole lot that I did. In a way, your resume reminds me of me a little bit. Like I remember coming out of college. And I had really good internships. So I came out of college. I was editor of my student newspaper. I had really good internships. I thought I was a shit. Like, I definitely thought I was a shit. And I thought, I'm going to write for Sports Illustrated. Like, I'm going to write for Sports Illustrated because I'm the man and blah, blah, blah. And I'm the best writer in my college newspaper. I probably wasn't even, but I, I thought I was like the thing, right? And I show up at the Tennessee and they make me the food and fashion writer and I get my ass kicked and I don't know what I'm doing and blah, 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 blah. I picture you sitting in Laredo a little bit being like, wait, what the fuck? This wasn't part of that. Sit living in an Airbnb on a border town with nothing to do doesn't really feel like part of this plan. You're right. It wasn't part of the plan. Like I was kind of saying earlier, like I was kind of like you, right? I was I wasn't the head editor of, of my student paper, but I was the sports editor. I won all these awards. 
I interned at the Denver Post. I had a, I worked at like a CBS TV station as an intern. Like, you know, I thought my resume was, was, was you know, my, my resume was good, but um, I, I got humbled uh, very quickly and, and going to a town in Laredo. And, and like, I'll also say like, I, I, like from a race standpoint, like I was like the only black person there. Like it, it was like 99% Mexican. I was like one of like maybe five black people in like, and Laredo was actually somewhat big uh, compared to other border towns. There are like 230,000 people who live there. I had to, I only saw like three other black people in the six months I lived there. And so that was a whole experience in of itself, culturally, um, not just the fact that I'm isolated from people I know and love and, and just being kind of off the grid, but also just being around a different race and a different culture and, and, and trying to get a feel for that and, and understanding how people did things. Um, so, so yeah, it was, um, it was, it was a humbling experience for sure. But, you know, I, I, you know, again, I'm, I'm really grateful for that, um, opportunity, like having to start where I did. Um, and I also feel like it's not as common anymore in the in the journalism space for people to start at these like really, really small markets and kind of move up. I don't think that's as common as it used to be. People can work for these maybe these bigger outlets, but like at a, you know, a digital or a remote capacity and stuff like that. I didn't have that opportunity. I kind of did the more traditional route. And yeah, it, it's just, I think it's just kind of made me more of who I am and, and kind of um, embrace and and just grateful for, for the journey I've taken to get to this point. Wait, so the, you're from Seattle and yeah. uh, Seattle, it's funny, you call it seattlepi.com everywhere. And I still think of it as a Seattle Post Intelligencer. Does no one call it that anymore? Yeah, no one calls it that anymore. I, I don't even know what like the Seattle PI, I don't even know what it is right now. It's not, they don't even have really any employees right now. It be, it's become somewhat of like a newsletter type site. Yeah. It's kind of sad because, you know, as you know, probably back in the day, the Seattle Post Intelligence or the Seattle Times used oh, yeah. to be 1A and 1B in, in Seattle back in the day. But when the whole push for, for digital and um, and, and kind of the decline of print, like the the post intelligence or kind of fell off. The Times kind of kept itself afloat, but then the PI just kind of developed this the digital only presence. And so that's why it became just SeattlePI.com and not, I mean, but some of the old heads, some of the older people who've been in Seattle know it as Seattle Post Intelligencer, but a lot of the younger people just know it as SeattlePI.com, if they even know of yeah, it right. at all. I remember just a lot of times when I was covering the Seahawks, you know, people would ask me where I worked and I said, Seattle PI and people would say that still exists or they didn't even know it was a thing anymore. That's, that's just kind of the way it, or what it has become, which is unfortunate, but, um, but yeah, so that, that's, it's kind of the, the story behind that. All right. So you're sitting there in Laredo and you get this job offer from a legit, news outlet, but a news outlet that's certainly in decline. It's not what it was. You know, as you said, Seattle used to be a strong two paper town. There are none really none left anymore. Yeah. Are you like, praise Jesus. Thank you for calling me. I'm out of here. Like what was your, yeah, honestly, that's, that's, <laughs> that's basically what I was. That's basically how I was feeling. Like it was, you know, I, I kind of knew what the state of the PI was obviously and the decline, the regression of what was, you know, once a great paper in, in, in Seattle, but, but it was the opportunity to cover the Seahawks, you know, a big platform, you know, even if I wasn't at the Seattle times or ESPN or anything like that, just that platform and the opportunity to tell really incredible stories and to do so in the place where I'm from. Uh, like I was ecstatic when, when I got that phone call, um, I was beyond excited. I couldn't, couldn't wait to get out of Laredo, honestly. And, and like we've talked about, like there are a lot of reasons why I was super grateful and happy about being in Laredo, but I, I was so ready to, to leave. Um, I, I was just so lonely, you know, I, I, I needed, I needed that. And, and so I was, yeah, to answer your question, I, I was just so excited. How, how do they know you existed? 
Yeah. So my good friend, you know, one of my closest friends in the industry, Michael Sean Dugar, who, who does a killer job um, covering the Seahawks for the athletic, the job at the PI was his, but uh, he left to go to the athletic and then um, he recommended me. And so he's the one who, who first called me like, Hey man, I'm, I'm leaving, you know, the PI is going to reach out to you. And, and so that's kind of how it all got started. And then, yeah, I, I just, from there, I mean, they, they kind of already had their eyes on me, but then we just kind of formalized it where I just sent my resume and a couple clips. But um, I, I felt like I, I had the impression that like, it was kind of my job to lose as soon as I got the call from my friend, Mike. You're working for a, again, a once vaunted newspaper and a big two, former two newspaper town. They call you, they want you to leave Laredo. So obviously I'm taking this. But you also know, like, it's not on the solid footing you used to be on. It's not as recognizable as it used to be on. Are you concerned about that at all when you go there? I, I don't think I looked at it like that as much. Um, I kind of looked at it more as to your first point, like being able to go to Seattle. But quickly, as you know, got into football season, training camp, first few weeks of the season, I, I really started to realize, oh, people really aren't looking at my work that much as, as like I could have the same thing as the guy from the Seattle times, but the Seattle times will, or the ESPN will get all the clicks and the attention and, and, and the social media engagement, so to speak versus me. Um, so, so that was, that was definitely a challenge and kind of on the point too, of the PI declining. I also didn't have like a formal sports editor. I was really kind of on an Island uh, like when I came in, we had like a news editor who didn't really know sports. And then there was a span of several months, I think during the, the, my second season covering the Seahawks where we didn't have an editor at all, where we kind of were just a group of reporters that kind of managed ourselves, Um, and we had like people higher in, in corporate or based in San Francisco that were kind of overseeing us, but we were kind of on our own. And so that was kind of a whole nother challenge on top of the fact that, um, I, I didn't really have a whole lot of direction. And so I just kind of sucked it up. And honestly, what, what just I think what I really appreciated in that experience was really just trying to find unique story angles that the bigger outlets weren't going to cover or just figuring out ways to add more to my story that maybe other people didn't have and really working to. And this is a time when, you know, lo locker rooms were uh, open and, and they're going to I guess they're going to come back for the 2022 season, but really just working locker rooms. Uh, and, you know, honestly, I, I felt like I had an advantage over others because, you know, I'm a younger African-American. Um, I, I felt like I, I had a lot more in common with a lot of the guys I was covering. I, I, I felt like um, I could get them to open up in a way that other others couldn't. And, and so I really tried to use that to my advantage um, to find like unique story angles that the other people weren't covering. Um, and I, I think that kind of helped me a lot. And so that's kind of it kind of went from me, like really just being so excited to get out of Laredo and being in Seattle to realizing, oh, I see how it is to be kind of at a dying newspaper in a in a competitive market to, OK, I, I realize the advantages I have. Just try to use that to my benefit and kind of attack the beat as I could. I have to go back on this. You're working at this place. You're covering the Seahawks. You don't have an editor. Does that mean literally nobody is reading your work before it goes online? Sometimes, yeah. I'm, I'm serious. Yeah, sometimes from a grammatical standpoint, I mean, we'd have, uh, yeah, I'd get eyeballs on my work sometimes, especially with the bigger stories, even if the editor I had or kind of the elder reporters looking at my work, even if they maybe didn't understand the nuances of football or X's and O's and stuff, they could read copy, right? At the end of the day, reporting can be reporting. And so, um, so I, I did kind of have that to some respect, but, but yeah, a lot of the times I, I mean, I had the green light to self publish. Um, and I think, and yeah, there, there are obviously a lot of mistakes that came in that, but I think that made me just knowing what the situation was, it made me so good at being my own editor um just in terms of reading over multiple th my stuff before 
publishing or reading it out loud, like it's, you know, obviously a disadvantage being such a young reporter, not having that kind of eyeball on your eyeballs on your work on a consistent, consistent basis. But I also think that really helped me get to where I am now, just knowing that my copy is, is, you know, can be really clean. Um, just because I, I, I think I look at my work, um, you know, very, very closely, maybe more so than others that kind of knew from the early going that they were just going to have editors maybe tear it up. I just kind of had to be that for myself um, in, in many regards. It is. I'm not uh, doubting your ability. It is insane to have no editor. Like I've never heard that before. I've heard many small, the smallest newspapers you can think of. There's usually at least somebody reading someone's copy before it goes into print. That's, I mean, kind of terrifying. Like it just seems kind of terrifying. For me. You know, I don't know. You know, all, all it takes is one really bad mistake. You know, yeah, it's, uh, yeah. Uh, it's crazy. Yeah, it, it, it was. Yeah. A lot of times I'd publish and, and someone would back read eventually in some cases, but sometimes no one, sometimes no one ever did. Um, and, and it was a good thing too, that I had great mentors in my circle too. Like, even though I, I maybe didn't get all the, re, didn't have all the resources in-house, like I had really great mentors who, who, you know, kind of really well-established in the industry and, and I've been doing it for a long time. Like, especially with those bigger stories where I was really concerned about stuff, like I would have them look at stuff before I filed, um, and so, but, but yeah, it was, it was insane now that I think about it and knowing of about all the structure I have now at the Tennessean where I really have, I've one main sports editor, but I've kind of a couple other people who serve as my kind of secondary editors and, and like an entire desk uh, dedicated to like looking over people's work when the editors can't get to it first. So um, it, it's, I think I, I didn't really realize how crazy it was, as you're kind of saying, until I got to the Tennessee and, and realizing what kind of structure other people have. Before we continue with two writers slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who's increasingly concerned by the rumors that former Styx guitarist Tommy Shaw will be replacing HM in NCT Dream. It doesn't make sense. Isn't the Styx guy old? Not really. He's 68. Damn. Okay, well, here's an idea. What if we go to RoyalRetros.com, king of the throwback sports merchandise, and order some stuff for Heichen? That's great. And I can write a short note, like, Dear Heichen, you're the best. Please don't leave NCT Dream. I've enclosed an embroidered Eater Rayford San Antonio Gunslinger's jersey and two hats. Love, Casey. It's so crazy, it just might work. Please don't leave Heichen. You mentioned you're a young African-American guy. You're covering the NFL. The NFL is, you know, rosters are about 70% African-American. Do you feel like there is an immediate, you walk into a locker room, guys see you. Can that immediately help you to a certain degree? Or is it a matter of establishing yourself, showing you're a certain kind of person, and then maybe they feel more comfortable with you knowing, well, he's this kind of guy. He's also our age. He's a black guy. He's cool, blah, 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 blah. Like, how would you feel like that sort of manifests itself? Yeah, I think initially it, it does help because, as you know, in this space, like 90, 95 percent, maybe in some cases of, of the beat reporters are white. It's typically white, typically men, typically older white men. And so I think from first glance, that gives you an advantage. But it, it's not I don't want to make it seem like it's that easy. Right. Like the, the players have to come to trust you. Right. It, it's. You know, I think in a lot of cases, there's this big perception about the media and is always the media is always out to get you. And and, you know, which which is kind of a whole nother story in itself. But um, but at the end of the day, it, it all comes back to, to connection and, and relationship. Like, yeah, them seeing that I look like them, that I'm about their age and that I'm African-American like them, like, sure, that's going to be a good first impression, but over time, I have to gain their trust. I have to show um, I'm going to be a fair reporter. I have to um, build rapport with them, you know, have conversations with them. And, and that's kind of the thing why I'm, I'm so happy, like so many other people, about, that the locker rooms are going to be open again, because um, my first year on the Titans beat, it was just at the podium or 
they had this fence set up where we, we had to be like six feet away from the players talking. And it was essentially a scrum because the, the PR, the, you know, Titans PR would just kind of handpick the players who would speak. And so you never really got to know guys on a personal basis, but I think being back in the locker room is kind of where kind of my advantages come back into play. But then also knowing that me looking like them isn't enough. Um, like you, you just have to kind of build, build relationships with guys over time, just like how people build relationships in their day-to-day life, like not thinking of it as a transaction, always going to them. Like when, when you need a stuff for a quarter in their face and they need a, you need a quotes for your story that you want clicks for. It's just, sometimes chopping it up, just getting to know them, how their family's doing, like what, what they think about basketball. Like a lot of NFL dudes are huge basketball fans and, and, and just navigating different personalities because not everyone just wants to have relationships like that with media that they don't, with reporters that they don't know. It's kind of getting a feel for each person because every person is, is different and unique, just how like in outside of the NFL building. So it's, it's, um, so, so my kind of point is that, yes, maybe what I look like helps initially, but then it's, I think over time, it's just kind of building the relationship like I would in any other relationship outside of the NFL setting. Um, I think those are kind of the, the two things, um, I try to hone in on. I definitely think in this profession too often people assume Oh, he's a young black guy, blah, blah, blah. Or, oh, he's an older white guy, blah, blah. And the reality is like, if you don't know how to talk to people and you don't know how to relate to people and you don't know how to empathize to people, it doesn't matter what you look like, people are going to think you're an asshole. Exactly. Here you are. You're the product of a a first generation American family. I was reading your bio from Ghana. Ghana. Your family, I'm sure, is very close to you and they, they love you. And, oh, my God, he's coming home. He is coming home to Seattle. This is the greatest thing ever. He's no longer in Laredo. He's close to us in Seattle. Praise God, this is the best thing ever. I got a new job in Nashville. I'm leaving. Sorry. Goodbye. How did that go over? Yeah, it was it was tough. I mean, especially for my mom. I mean, we, we know how moms can be. Um, <laughs> yeah, she, you know, my mom was obviously sad, but... Um, but yeah, I mean, my parents were, were excited for me. They, they know, they've known kind of what my goals have been in this space for a long time. I, I've been very open with them about that and kind of what this space looks like in, in terms of the bouncing around sometimes. And, um, and so they understood. I think my dad was early on was probably more on board, um, uh, at least like earlier than kind of my mom was, but I mean, it wasn't, honestly, it wasn't as tough as I, I thought it would be. Um, but it, 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 it did take some adjusting just when, when I got to Nashville, like I, I'd never been to Nashville um, or to the state, the state, state of Tennessee um, in, in general, kind of before the job. And I think being in that part of the country, I think this is kind of where my mom's main concerns were just like with being in Tennessee, because when you live in Washington, when you live in Seattle, kind of the liberal hub, I guess, and you, you go to the South uh, and this Tennessee in, in particular, there's a, a, a perception of it from afar um, that, uh, that I, you know, my mom was kind of uncomfortable with and, and, she, you know, we all know the history in, in the South and whatnot. And I think that was probably where my mom's biggest concerns were more than anything. But yeah, kind of as I learned, like with Laredo, like you you can't, you have to kind of experience places for yourself. Like I was hearing kind of the same things in, in a different way, of course, uh, about Laredo, just about being a border town and how you don't want to be there and the, the cartels and yada, yada, yada. Um, it is the same thing about kind of moving to the South. Oh, you know, the racists and, you know, it's a red state and you know, all this stuff. So, yeah, I think that's where kind of my mom's concerns were, but, you know, she's, she's been here now. I've been here for like 14 months now and, you know, I, I love living here and, you know, Nashville is a cool little city, as you know. Um, but, um, but yeah, that, that's kind of what, what the experience was like leaving and, and, and like kind of going back to where the PI Seattle PI was at, 
Like it wasn't a hard decision for me to leave because I knew where the Seattle PI was headed. I knew this was an opportunity for me to cover the NFL exclusively for, you know, a legacy newspaper that's still very well established, you know, just all the resources were available to me. So from all those regards, it was a, you know, pretty easy decision. My first letter I ever got as a writer at the Tennessean was a postcard with a heart stamp on one side, fuck you, Yankee Jew boy on the other side. So that was my introduction to Nashville, Tennessee. But I ended up loving the town. Tennessee is the craziest senator in America, arguably, Marsha Blackburn. And she makes everyone think that this is a complete state of, you know, insane people. But Nashville is an oasis. For sure. Yeah, I think I think Nashville and I think you can also say Memphis, too, are very different from the rest of the state. You know, two kind of more city like, more liberal minded people. Um, And then you kind of have the in-between areas where, um, honestly, being kind of a black man sometimes, you know, like I wouldn't want to stop in in some of these places. Like when I go on road trips across the state, like, honestly, I don't want to stop. Oh yeah. (laughs) So uh, that's just kind of what it is like seeing Confederate flags. Once you get out of middle Tennessee and driving to the Eastern part of the state or whatever, like, you know, that's just kind of what it is. But, um, but yeah, I love, I love being here though. All right. You're the Tennesseans new beat writer. And there's a there's an article in the Tennessean, uh, April 1st, 2021. Meet Ben Arthur, the Tennessean's new Tennessee Titans B writer. Dear Tennessean readers, I have a public service announcement. No, I'm not trying to reintroduce myself like rapper Jay-Z in his 2003 hit public service announcement. Rather, I'm introducing myself. There's no prior meeting between me and you all or y'all, as many of you say it. So you don't know who I am or what I'm about, but I hope to change that. My name is Ben Arthur. I'm the new Tennessee Titans beat writer for the Tennessean. I'm coming to Nashville from Seattle, blah, blah, blah. I've never stepped foot in Tennessee, let alone Nashville. I would have never admitted that because I feel like in a way it allows people to say, this guy doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. I'm not saying you were wrong. I'm interested. Why did you tell people you'd never been to Nashville? Yeah, I mean, it it was just the way I was kind of, the way I kind of framed it, the way I did was like, hey, like I'm not hiding from the fact that I'm a newbie. I'm new to your culture. I'm new to your city. I'm new to your state. I'm new to this beat. I'm new to the Tennessean. Like I was just trying to get people to understand where I was coming from. And so that's kind of why I framed it the way I did. Just the fact that I'm open to learning from you guys just as much as I'm eager to show you guys and tell you guys about what I'm all about. I also want to get to know what you guys are all about. So that's kind of why I I just kind of, I wanted to just be as open and as vulnerable um, as possible. Um, So that's kind of why I did that. I I always ask as a writer, like like back when I was at the Tennessee and again, to sound like grandpa Gus here, the local writers, the Tennessee and writers, like the columnists were these guys, Larry Woody, David Clymer, everyone knew who they were. Mike Oregon, who's still there at the paper. Mike Oregon was a yes. really well-known local writer. People knew who he was and it kind of mattered. And like you would show up at a restaurant and you'd sign your check, Mike Oregon, and people, oh, Mike Oregon, you know, or David Clymer. Oh my God, Dave. Do people care anymore? Are, are journalists, local journalists still identifiable? That's a tough question because I think for for people who like Mike Oregon, who you said, and and people in certain markets who've maybe been in one place for a very long time, I think obviously maybe they're they're more recognizable. But I think honestly, with uh with the way the landscape is now, people it feels like everyone like kind of changes jobs every couple years. Yeah. Um. And 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 the the media landscape has changed so much that people are kind of maybe doing journalism in in different ways or moving outlets or. And, and stuff like that. People move around a lot, it seems. And so I, I think maybe that um, they're not as recognizable. Um, but honestly, even though I've only been in uh, Nashville for like 14 months, um, I, I do get recognized sometimes. You know, there have been a couple of times where people have come up to me and, you know, say, hey, you, you do a great job or um, things like that. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm famous by any any measure, but like when, when sometimes you, you could get stopped and, and stuff, at least from speaking from an NFL beat reporters perspective, right? Like the biggest um, professional sports franchise in the place where I reside, I think there is still kind of a level of clout that comes with that, even if maybe you haven't been at a place very long. Um, but, but I think generally to answer your question, I, I don't think they're maybe as recognized as, as, 
um, kind of they were. I, I think obviously the national talking heads seem to get um, even when they're talking about issues kind of in your jurisdiction or in your beat, those are the people that kind of get the face attached to those topics just because people see them blabbing on TV all the time, or they see the, the 45 second clip on Twitter um, about that specific topic. And, and I think those people are just more recognizable. Well, it's interesting because you have come along in an era where the biggest people in sports, like when I came along, it was sports columnists. The sports columnists were the famous people in sports, right? On your LinkedIn page, you wrote, my goal is to become a multi-platform sports journalist. So coming up in this modern era of sports journalism, are you at all swayed by the desire to be a skip, Stephen A, loud, opinionated, but famous and well-paid? Or is there still a place for the dogged, determined, hard-nosed newspaper beat writer? You know, the news, the, the newspaper world has obviously changed a lot and, and people have and need to continue to rethink how uh, we do like print journalism and whatnot. But I think at the core, like not I'm not really talking about newspapers, but like just from the, the core part of like reporting and storytelling, I think there will always be a place for that. Um, obviously, the talking heads dominate TV um, and are very loud and will have the following and those will be where maybe the, the highest paid jobs are in our space. But I think there were there, there will always be a space for good, great, like great reporting and storytelling, um, even if the formats and the platforms in which we do that change. You know, storytelling is at the core of the human spirit. Like we always want to tell stories and tell good stories and and there's always going to be a need to to have great reporters, even if maybe they're not at the traditional newspaper anymore, but they're just on TV or they're doing it on TikTok or Instagram or whatever format it takes. I think there will always be a place for that. I just want to say your resume, I freaking love your resume is everything. When young writers or young aspiring journalists talk to me, it's like every point that needs to be made is here. You're in, first of all, all right, you're in college. You do multiple things, Black Student Union, speech and debate. You're the sports editor of your student newspaper. I don't know what this even means, but while you're in college, January 2015, February 2015, so for a big two months, you were the color commentator for Lewis and Clark College. How the hell does that happen? When I learned I wanted to kind of be in this space, my pull to it wasn't as a writer. It was to be a broadcaster because I was such a big fan of Stuart Scott, you know, rest in peace, Marv Albert. Uh, Mike Green, people like that. And so at that point, like I didn't really know how to get started. And so I just reached out to someone because this is when I was just kind of starting in, in college, I think. And um, it was someone that, that was accessible, like their DMs were open or I found like an email. I was just like, hey, I'm kind of interested in, in potentially, you know, being a commentator and stuff like that. Would you have any tips for me? And then the guy was like, yeah, why don't you just get on the air with me? Um, meet me here <laughs> next weekend, you know, I, in, in Portland, you know, it's in a different part of Portland from where I was at, but it just kind of drove over. And it's like for, you know, just some, for bas some basketball games, just for me to kind of get a feel for what that was like. And I'm, you know, I'll always be really grateful for kind of that opportunity, but that was kind of how that came about me just, uh, trying to figure out like how exactly I can get in this space because um, when, when I committed to the University of Portland, I didn't really know that journalism was the route I was going to go. Um, but then once I kind of learned that you, the University of Portland doesn't really have a journalism program, they have a really good student run news outlet, but they didn't have like a journalism program and I, at this time, when I kind of was doing the commentating, I wasn't involved in the student paper. And, and so and, and and they didn't really have broadcast anyways. And so I was like, I just reached out to this local broadcaster. Hey, I want to try this out. Um, what tips do you have for me? And then he just kind of threw me on the air with him. Uh, so that's kind of how that happened. Then you interned at a local TV station. Then you produce. This is what I love. 2015, 2017 producer host of Ben on Hoops. Uh, on SoundCloud, basketball-specific audio show featuring blah, blah, blah. 
And like, I always tell people a million times over, there's no reason you can't, you 18 year old aspiring journalist can't start a podcast. There's no reason you can't do a YouTube channel. There's no reason you can't even a blog, even though blogs are outdated, even start nowadays, you can do anything you want because all the creative tools are at your fingertips. And if they're not free, they're pennies. Like you said, there's so many platforms. There, there's no excuse anymore. I mean, you could just, yeah, just pick up a mic. Um, like in my case, as you, as I was kind of saying earlier, I, I loved basketball. Um, I was still really dead set on kind of being, you know, a broadcaster to, to some degree. Um, and then I just started, I just started this show and, and I, I knew I loved interviewing people. And so I, I just would interview kind of local basketball stars in Seattle or college athletes I knew were, I had good relationships with a lot of the back college basketball players at uh, University of Portland. So I'd bring them on. Um, and yeah, just kind of started something from the ground up. And actually one of my roommates was like, he was like an audio expert. Like he was kind of like my little audio engineer. I, I wasn't paying him or anything, but uh, just when he had time, like he'd kind of comb through my audio for me, clean it up, make it sound really good and professional. Um, and yeah, I just put to get, put out this show. Um, it, it was, it was a ton of fun. I, I was actually still doing it when, even when I joined the student paper, um, like just kind of in the summers, like that summer I was doing the TV internship. Um, it, that was only like two days a week. Um, and I, I took like a summer class and that was like once a week. And so I had all this time and I was staying in Portland. I wasn't at home in Seattle. And so I just decided, I, I just kind of kept doing the, the podcast at that point. And, and it was just a lot of fun. I mean, yeah, some of my favorite interviews I've done, I, I think kind of were in that space. It was just, I just enjoyed it so much. Like I, it's just kind of a passion, a passion project for sure. I'm required to ask this final question on this podcast because I ask everyone, however, you are a young guy and I don't know if you'll have a good answer, but I'm going to try in your career. Do you have a story of someone being particularly mad frustrated, pissed off at you, or slash, do you have an awkward moment from your journalism career? I, I There was an awkward moment just I had with a player. Um, this was probably my first season covering the Seahawks. I was still just trying to figure out, like, dynamics, uh, like locker room dynamics and, and you know, reporter player dynamics in the locker room in, in particular. And I remember there was this one time where I, I tried getting a player's number and it was just super awkward. Like, he was like, why do you want my number? And and I don't even remember what I said. I was like, oh, I wanted to do some like kind of off-season cool feature on you. And it was just kind of a really weird conversation. And I didn't I didn't get the player's number, <laughs> but it was just <laughs> it was just so bad. I know like getting numbers is actually a part of obviously being a beat writer is you want to reach these guys in the off-season. And I don't know if that was more of a thing back in the day a little bit than it is now. Like, do you is it important to have you cover the Titans? Is it important to be able to reach Ryan Tannehill or Derek Henry or these guys in the off season? Or is that unrealistic in these days? Yeah, no, it, it, it's still important. I mean, as I said, like this first year on the beat, like I, I, it was, none of it was in the locker room. All the times we had to interact with them were like in a podium setting or like a fence setting. So I, I, I never had one-on-ones with like any Titan, any of the, Titans main stars really I mean uh I was able to meet up with a couple players like through third parties at like restaurants and and stuff like that but um but in terms of like at the building like in the locker room I didn't get any of that my first year but um on the Seahawks beat you know I got I think I got kind of pretty good like by my second and third season like in the yeah right before like during locker room clean out day you you go to a guy who you knew you had great you know rapport with relationship with, um and and you know it was you know pretty easy to get those numbers because you knew where you you guys kind of stood with each other like where I stood with a player where the player stood with me it wasn't that that hard um, because it's just like a relationship, um but yeah so I'm hoping with this coming season I'll be able to kind of cultivate more of those relationships because so far I, I haven't um, quite frankly with, with the Titans players. Let me ask you a final, final, final question. You dropped a Jay-Z reference in your, in your welcome to Tennessee thing. I assume you're just by that a 
Are you a hip hop guy at all? I am. I okay, am. you're also from Seattle. 2014 Grammy Best Rap Album. The nominees are Drake, Nothing Was the Same, Jay Z, Magna Carta, Kendrick Lamar, Good Kid, Mad City, Kanye West, Yeezus, and the winner, Macklemore for the heist. Macklemore is a Seattle guy, much like you. Can you make an argument defending Macklemore for winning the Grammy over Kendrick? I, 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 I can't. I'm not a Macklemore fan, honestly. <laughs> yeah, he's it's he he just never really he's never really struck a chord with me. I mean, obviously he he represents Seattle very well. Um, you know, I've nothing against him as a person, but just his music, like I'm not I'm not a fan. Uh, so I, I can't I can't defend him. <laughs> Honestly, I can't. I, I would have given it to, to Kendrick. Um, I, oh, yeah. that, that Mad City album was really good. Wait, um, wait, I'm a little confused. 18 year old Ben Arthur in Seattle. You're not you're not jamming a thrift shop, walking around being like, I'm going to pop some tags. Wasn't that wasn't you? No, that wasn't me at all. <laughs> Your city produces one name rapper and you will not support him in his Grammy win. Again, he, he's a good dude, but music you have to vibe with it right like if you, you can't force it like even if he's from where you're from it, it just it doesn't work if you you can't really vibe with it and i i just never like his type of hip-hop I, I never really felt like i related to or like it, it just wasn't kind of my style so. you could take ten thousand space aliens bring them to earth say we're gonna play these five albums for you and you have to rank them and they've never heard a hip-hop song before and they would not give Macklemore the win. Yeah, I'm still flabbergasted about that. <laughs> ben, I appreciate you doing this. I uh, I wish you luck in my own in my my home turf of Nashville, Tennessee. And um, yeah, thanks for coming on the show. No problem, Jeff. Thanks for having me. I want to thank today's guest, Ben Arthur, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Ben on Twitter at Ben Y Arthur and read his work in the Nashville, Tennessee. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money for doing this podcast, and I rely on word of mouth. Music is by the sizzling MC Waddell. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep riding.